Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. simply a vessel. I was a vessel. I was a vessel for the women sitting in that room. The cousin of a young girl murdered hanging from the tree. The little girls that sat in that room that day, they've had to endure. <laughs> that have had to endure some of the most horrific abuse in their lives, neglect. Who have been rescued by their older sister out of the territory to live in another state, to give them a chance. They're the voices the media ignores. They're the voices this bloody voice the parliament will ignore. Are they the voices we're going to ignore? And what are we gonna do on October 14? We're voting no for their voices and we are going to fight to make sure that it's their voices that are heard. That we hold those to account who have made their lives a misery, who have been funded to improve their lives, who have sat at a table for decades and done nothing. Well, hello, uh, I'm Lyle Shelton. It's great to have your company. With just three weeks until the October 14 voice referendum, I'll have more to say on that in just a moment when I speak with the academic and commentator, Dr. Stephen Shavora. But isn't Jacinta Nampajipa Price simply magnificent? Cometh the hour, cometh the woman. If the idea of racial equality and everyone being equal under the law does not perish from this Commonwealth, it will have been in large part 
due to her efforts. As I said, I'll come back to The Voice with Dr. Shavura in just a moment. Also coming up in the program, the Honourable Nick Goiran will join me from Perth to unpack the passing of abortion to birth laws in the WA Parliament this week and the heartless and ruthless rejection of a number of amendments which would have provided at least some protections to unborn babies and their mothers. I'll have something also to say about Chris Bowen's demonisation of nuclear energy and I'll show you some harrowing video trashing the rights of children and women. It's a packed show, all that and more, so don't touch that dial. But first, our weekly commentator on the battle being waged by LGBTIQA plus political activists against women and girls, Kiralee Smith, has had a legal victory. Activists launched multiple legal actions against her for calling out biological males playing soccer against girls and women. We've talked about this many times on this program. After police turned up at her home and served her with papers for an apprehended violence order, the Binary Australia spokeswoman was forced to attend Burwood Local Court in Sydney this week. She arrived with her lawyer, former New South Wales Attorney General, Greg Smith, to find the AVO had been withdrawn. We won, she posted on X, formerly known as Twitter. The AVO was withdrawn. It is not violence to defend women's spaces or sport. She also posted on X, the first win in this series of lawfare against me is greatly encouraging. I still have an AVO application by another male player in a female team and two vilification complaints. I will stand firm and not shrink back. I will have this week off to celebrate and to recover and be back soon." End quote. Now, the idea that Kiralee posed a threat to the biological male Riley Dennis, identifying as a female soccer player, is ludicrous. And clearly those bringing the legal action did not want to face further embarrassment in court. Just how ludicrous was summed up in the report in the Daily Telegraph. And it said, quote, after a complaint by Football Australia, police visited Miss Smith and issued the AVO, preventing her from approaching or discussing Miss Dennis or visiting FA's offices, despite Miss Smith living 300 kilometres away on the New South Wales North Coast, end quote. Now, sadly, the Liberal and the Labor parties will not change the Sex Discrimination Act, which allows biological males to identify as girls or women, making their sport and private spaces unsafe. Now, Kiralee said on Twitter, or X, that she was planning to have a break this week, and she is, and so she should. But uh, she's very kindly agreed to join us to talk to you, our ADHTV audience, about uh, what happened in the Burwood Court this week. Uh, Kiralee, um, congratulations. Uh, how did it feel to turn up at court and find your opposition had run away? Oh, look, it was marvellous. We, we actually had to wait until two o'clock. We were kept uh, getting put off, but right as the magistrate was ready to uh, conduct the hearing, the police prosecutor asked to speak to my counsel and uh, said that they would be withdrawing the application. So it was such a relief and, uh, and, and the right thing to do, might I add, because there's no way that I've ever been violent or pose no. a violent threat to anybody. This was always about the policy that Football Australia has and... Uh, and, and this particular one was an example of what happens when we allow males in female sports and spaces. And, um, yeah, so it, it's just great to be vindicated. It's great for that one to um, be put aside now. I, I'm celebrating. I'm so happy. Um, but Good. as you said, 
there's still another one to go and two vilification complaints uh, on the horizon. So. Yeah, it's ridiculous. The fact that, that any of this has happened is, is, is crazy. But um, did, did you get any indication from Football Australia or Riley, Ga- uh, Riley Dennis and uh, his legal representatives as to why this was withdrawn? Uh, no, we didn't, Lyle. And look, this has gone on. It's already cost, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. We took with us, as you said, the former Attorney General of New South Wales, Greg Smith, uh, who was in Parliament, by the way, when these laws uh, were first, you know, came in. He is recognised as one of Australia's most senior counsel. Uh, he's he's an extraordinary person and a wonderful man. And the Solve legal team were absolutely extraordinary. They made a, a wonderful submission that the magistrate, the only comment he made was, uh, you know, that he really appreciated our submissions and that he learned a lot about constitutional law because constitutional law isn't usually something that comes up in local court. Uh, and um, But no, the police prosecutor gave no apology, gave no explanation. Um, but as you know, the process is the punishment, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and of course, we must remember this is not over for you. You've still got another apprehended violence uh, order against you and uh, a couple of matters uh, looming in the New South Wales Civil and Administrative tribunal. But Kiralee, I'm just wondering if Football Australia, you know, given all the Matilda mania that we've seen over recent weeks and months with uh, their, uh, you know, wonderful um, World Cup uh, performance, sadly didn't quite make it through, but uh, galvanised the nation and and, um, captured the imagination of young girls everywhere who who just want to play for the Matildas. Do you think uh, having a spotlight shining on Uh, men appropriating women's gender playing soccer against girls and women might have had something to do with them wanting to walk away from this. Possibly. And look, and I think it's why they've worked so hard this year to try and silence me because, you know, from the beginning of the year when we found out that there were several, like many, many more than just the two uh, that are taking action against me, um, you know, we did this appropriately at every stage lie we approached the local clubs we approached the regions we approached the state football and then finally football australia who refused to engage with us when we were simply asking well what is your definition of a woman and why have a woman's competition like what's the difference between males and females if if males complain it what's the point of that and they really didn't like those questions. They didn't like being challenged. And so these extraordinary steps have um, been taken to try and silence me and silence our supporters who sent more than 12,000 emails to four email, uh, to four representatives of uh, these officials. And um, now we find ourselves in this place where I think they call it the Streisand effect, don't they? You know, like they, they try and shut me up and it actually highlights the issue even more. And so it's not going to go away. Thousands and thousands of young Australian girls want to play soccer, want to be like the Matildas, but how how do they get a fair and safe chance if there's males playing in the female divisions? Well, of course, they can't. Um, Kiralee, it reminds me of another famous courtroom drama where Tom Cruise's character says to Jack Nicholson's character, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> uh, well, sorry, Jack Nicholson says that to Tom Cruise's character, got that around the wrong way, but I think we all remember that scene from A Few Good Men and uh, it seems like Football Australia couldn't handle the truth this week and they've walked away from this. Let's hope the other legal actions face a similar fate. Uh, Kiralee, thanks very much for uh, uh, joining us while you're taking a well-earned break. Uh, All of us wish you the best and we'll continue to follow your case with interest and we'll look forward to you resuming your commentary here with us on ADH TV in the weeks ahead. Thanks Thanks for having me, Laura. I can't remember a time when change has felt so urgent. 
where momentum has been so strong. From small towns to big cities, something is in the air. I know all Australians feel it too. We have the chance to be part of a moment that brings people together, to work hard for something that we can all believe in. And right now, each of us can be part of something that really matters. To stand together and to show our support for Australians who need it the most. To recognise Indigenous peoples in our constitution for the very first time. To give our kids the very best start in life, an equal start in life and to open our hearts and change our future. I'm voting yes, and I am asking that all Australians do too. So please, stand with me and write yes on October 14. Well, that, of course, was the great uh, Cathy Freeman. Uh, joining me now is Dr. Stephen Shavora. Stephen is an academic and author, lecturer at Campion College and a prolific commentator on social media. He's been deeply engaged in the voice debate and he joins me now. Steve, what did you think about that clip from Cathy Freeman released just this week by the Yes Campaign? Well, I mean, it was heartfelt, but it's, it's typical of pretty much everything the Yes campaign has released, which is purely emo pure emotionalism. They don't offer any arguments. Cathy uh, doesn't offer any good arguments as to why we should vote yes. And you saw this also in the Yes campaign's, ca campaign's leaflet that everyone got in the mail. Um, precious few actual good arguments to vote yes, but plenty of quotes from sports stars saying that they want to vote yes. Yep. Um, so we're talking about a major constitutional change, the biggest change in our constitution in our nation's history, and they're not actually offering us any good reasons to make this change. And I just think that there's an air of contempt towards the Australian public from the Yes campaign, thinking that Australians are so stupid that they would actually vote to disrupt their constitution based on feelings, feelings alone. Well, well, that's right. And, and that video, and look, you know, I'd be the last to want to in any way denigrate Cathy Freeman. She's an Australian icon. We all admire her. But there was no argument there, as you said. It was, we, we all want to see Indigenous kids have an equal start in life. No one disagrees with that. In fact, I don't disagree with anything that she said in that video. And if that's what we were voting on, I'd vote yes. But she didn't even mention the voice, the biggest constitutional change, as you said. Yeah, that's right, uh, because as soon as you start mentioning the actual voice, it starts. people start asking questions. Uh, how powerful will this voice be? Uh, what exactly is the voice going to advocate for? Give us specifics. And when you start asking for details, the whole yes case starts to crumble. And then when they get backed into a corner, inevitably they start lashing out uh, with racist misinformation, all those sorts of name calling. And that's more or less where the Yes campaign is at right now. It's getting to the point where they know that this thing's going to tank, they're in a corner and they're lashing out. Mm. Steve, uh, Jacinta Price gave a landmark speech at the National Press Club last week where she uh, was talking about the impacts of, col of colonisation. Let's take a look. In your speech, you claim some Indigenous organisations, quote, want to demonise colonial settlement. Could I ask you, please, do you believe the history of colonisation continues to have an impact on some Indigenous Australians? Uh, no. Very... I'll be honest with you, no. I don't think so. A positive impact? Absolutely. I mean, now we've got running water, we've got readily available food. I mean, everything that migrates... 
Now, Steve, you're, you're an historian. Um, is Jacinta right? Uh, look, basically, yes. And I'm not the only one saying this. Uh, the anthropologist Peter Sutton, in his brilliant book, The Politics of Suffering, talks about this very issue. And what Sutton says is that if you want to understand the problems that are experienced by Indigenous Australians today, um, appealing to things like colonialism and even even for the most part, racism, are not really going to get to the bottom of the problems. And, and, and Jacinta is absolutely right to re, sort of reject this notion that colonialism and its, and its ongoing impacts is a good explanation for the uh, problems experienced by many Indigenous Australians today. And she's also right that, yeah, in, in, a, in another respect, you know, Indigenous Australians are still being uh, impacted by colonialism, as she says, running water, electricity, um, in general, probably higher life expectancy than what they could have uh, enjoyed uh, prior to colonisation and that kind of thing. And of course, colonisation uh, brought some terrible things that sort of befell Indigenous Australians, there's no doubt about it. Uh, but in the long run, it's also brought a lot of good things as well. Um, but this idea of of constantly appealing to colonisation as, an, as some sort of causal explanation for the problems experienced by Indigenous Australians now, we've got to get past that because it's not actually going to help anyone. It's just going to continue to generate resentment and continue to direct people to looking for causes uh, that are sort of looking in the wrong place for the causes of present-day problems. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Uh, immediately after that comment at her speech, the backlash was intense. Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, yeah. said it was offensive. Why do you think um, the radical left uh, and the academic establishment are so keen to shut down uh, this idea of an alternative view on colonisation? Because a lot of these people have built their careers on blaming colonisation for everything that is going wrong in Indigenous communities today. It's, it, it's really an easy thing for them just to uh, appeal to as an easy explanation. Uh, experts are experts by virtue of the fact that they can explain things. And an easy explanation for things going wrong in Indigenous communities is just colonisation. And it draws on a lot of emotions that are easy uh, to draw on, resentment, uh, a sense of guilt among people. But as soon as you start trying to bring up more complex causes or bring up the other side of colonisation, um, then, of course, you know, they, they just, they, again, they, they start to lash out. They say, yes, it's offensive, yeah. it's misinformation, it's, it's racism. And look, another aspect here, Lyle, is to be quite frank, Critical theory and cultural Marxism have shaped the minds of a lot of these Indigenous activists far more than traditional Indigenous ways of thinking. Um, many of these Indigenous activists, like I would say Teela Reid would be a great mm. example, uh, probably Thomas Mayo as well, um, they identify with Indigenous Australia, probably more Teela Reid than Thomas Mayo, but they don't actually think like sort of traditional Indigenous Australia. They think like neo-Marxists. The ideas that they have have actually been developed and forged by white neo-Marxists. And in that view, nothing good could possibly come of colonisation. And everything that is going wrong in the lives of Indigenous Australians has nothing to do uh, with choices uh, made by Indigenous Australians themselves. Yeah. It's got everything to do with an oppressive colonial structure. 
That's right. And that takes away the need for personal responsibility. Um, look, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been saying this, but this voice is an attempt to entrench in the Constitution Marxist critical race theory, and that's a very toxic ideology. Steve, um, you've done what most of us have not, and that is you've read the Kalmar Langton report. This is the report uh, done by the Indigenous leaders, Tom Kalmar and Marcia Langton. Of course, Langton in the news in the last couple of weeks for calling no voters racist and, and saying essentially Australia has a, a massive racist, racism problem. What does their report tell us about the voice and how it might operate and what powers it might have? Yeah, great question. So what you the, the short answer is what you find out from this report is that this voice to parliament is much bigger than what we are being told. Um, so uh, the scope on the, on the issues of which the voice can speak on is unlimited. When you read the Karma Langton report, it is basically unlimited. It can speak on anything, and they say that pretty much everything potentially has an impact on Indigenous Australians. So it's pretty much on all topics that the voice can make representations on. Uh, second is that it's not just one voice that constitutes sort of the voice. Uh, you've got the voice to parliament at the federal level, but the Karma Langton report says that we also have to set up 35 additional local regional voices around Australia that will have the same rights to uh, local councils and state governments that the national voice is supposed to have to the federal government. So it's not just one voice that um, the voice advocates want to, want to um, create. It's actually all up 36 voices. Wow. And these 36 voices are meant to represent over 250 uh, Indigenous tribes, each of which considers themselves sovereign. So you can just see all sorts of problems that are going to uh, emerge uh, from that. Uh, and the other thing is that the, the local regional voices, and this is actually really important, the local regional voices which deal with sort of the on-the-ground problems experienced by Indigenous Australians every day, that the Karma Langton report explicitly says that local and regional problems are not to be brought to the national voice. The local regional problems are not to be brought to the national voice. They can be brought to the state and local governments. And so we're being told all the time this voice is going to um, you know, represent Indigenous Australians. It's going to be their voice. But in the Karma Langton report, in actual fact, most of the issues that they're facing are not to even to be brought to the national voice at all. And so you have to ask the question, well, what's the national voice there for? And the answer to that is quite simply, the national voice will be the main uh, organ to demand what the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart says is the culmination of the agenda, that is a treaty or makarata. Yes, that's, that's very interesting. So, um, Peter Dutton has said that he supports local and regional voices. Uh, is it those voices as described in the Kalmar Langton report? Is that essentially what the coalition policy is? It seems that, it seems that way. And in actual fact, those voices make a lot more sense mm. um, because, again, they are voices that are close to the ground. They are, they are from the, the areas where the problems are happening. They're not in Canberra. Uh, but, but look, let me be honest with you. I doubt very seriously that even that would work. Yep. Um, again, for, for several reasons, these local regional voices are supposed to each represent dozens of Indigenous tribes, and, and that's going to, I think, lead to conflict. But the other thing is the way that these local voices are meant to be um, 
uh, nominated is is not necessarily democratic either. And so you could imagine a lot of claims from Indigenous Australians that because these voices were not democratically elected, they don't really represent us. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is is that uh, you know, the, the underlying premise of all of this is wrong, and it is this notion that Indigenous Australians don't have a voice. They have many voices, yeah. and their voices are listened to as well. And we know their voices are listened to as well because even when you look at, yes, uh, material arguing for this voice, they say, we know that um, consulting uh, Indigenous peoples helps, and then they list a series of success stories where it's worked. In other words, it is not the case that they are always ignored. Um, the, the problems are, are much deeper than that. And the other thing is that the, the voice to parliament, maybe it guarantees that Indigenous Australians are listened to, but it doesn't guarantee that what they request will actually be brought about. Um, and it's not not being listened to, which is the problem. Uh, if there are good policies, um, it's not that they're not being heard. It's not that it's that they're not being brought about. And the voice department doesn't actually solve that at all. No, that's right. And uh, as you say, you know, this is going to create uh, a massive uh, bureaucracy. All of these voices, regional voices, they'll need secretariat support, they'll need money. Uh, as you say, there'll be the Canberra voice, uh, an organ essentially to negotiate a treaty despite Anthony Albanese's repeated denials. He's the only one on the yes side who says this is not about treaty. So you'd have to ask whether he's lying or not. What do you think then is the real motivation then behind the yes proponents uh, for making this massive change to the constitution? Um, you know, as, as you rightly said, there are myriad of voices out there. There's land councils, there's heaps of indigenous organisations. They're well funded to the tune of $40 billion per year. Uh, and yet, we don't see the needle move in terms of Indigenous disadvantage. What's the real motive then uh, in establishing this and entrenching it in the Constitution, in your view, Stephen Shavora? I think, I think that the motive, there are plural motives and they range from sort of just naive hope that a voice can actually help Indigenous Australians to quite frankly, let me be honest, when I listen to some activists um, they want this voice because they hate Australia. They hate yeah. this country and they're trying to get other people to hate this country and the purpose of this voice will be, in a sense, to try to hold this country to ransom to bring about a treaty. Now, I don't like saying that and I'm not saying that that is all advocates of the voice, but I do think there are some very vocal advocates who literally hate Australia and they see this voice as a mechanism to try to get back at Australia for what they perceive to be all the horrible things that have been done uh, to Indigenous Australians in history and all the horrible things being done today. Now, the, the ultimate purpose of this voice, I, I sincerely believe, is not so much to be able to help Indigenous Australians on the ground level with the, the local problems they're experiencing. Um, I think it really is to be a constitutionally entrenched, permanent cry for a treaty and for reparations. Once this thing is in the Constitution, it's going to be almost impossible to get rid of. And every time someone says, oh, uh, what about this problem being experienced in that community? What about this problem? You, uh, school retention rates, alcoholism, uh, health problems. They'll just say, go talk to the local regional voices, if they've even been established. Go talk to the local regional voices. That's not our area. We're talking. We're here to talk about systemic problems. And the biggest systemic problem we have is that we don't have a treaty. 
That is yeah. exactly what we can expect from this voice to Parliament. Yeah. Yes, whether their motive is that they actually hate Australia, I'm sure that is right with some of them. Uh, but certainly there's this animus to the way Australia was founded uh, and uh, the denial of the Australian achievement. Uh, we've talked earlier about it wasn't perfect, of course, but no no colonisation or settlement of Australia was ever going to be such. Um, but it, it's denying our ability to be proud of our nation and to, to build upon that. Um, Steve, um, you wrote um, a reply recently to a um, prominent Sydney Anglican minister, Michael Jensen. Um, he's a supporter of The Voice. Now, there's a lot of confusion amongst Christians about The Voice because we're all motivated by compassion and, and wanting to see something better for Indigenous people. I think that's something that's innate in Christian people is, is concern for our fellow brothers and sisters. But in your piece, which was later criticised uh, again by Jensen for lacking theology, you said that the more important question is whether there can be reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians without Indigenous forgiveness. Now, the Makarata at the heart of the Uluru Statement from the Heart is antithetical to the idea of forgiveness, isn't it? It's certainly antithetical. Yeah, it's, it's antithetical to the idea of forgiveness. It's, more importantly, it's probably antithetical to the idea of grace. Mm. Uh, and this is very important. Um, the Christian conception of forgiveness is that forgiveness is an offshoot of God's grace and we show grace to one another. And so what that means is very often um, we, we don't actually hold people fully accountable for their actions because that could actually lead to more conflict and God does not hold us fully accountable for our actions. If we ask God for forgiveness, uh, he forgives us. And so um, sort of, the, sort of the, the kind of forgiveness that we need in this country for reconciliation, if reconciliation even means anything in, this in a national context, um, requires forgiveness. Um, and I'm not the only person saying this. So, you know, Pastor James Dargan, mm. uh, a New South Wales uh, Indigenous elder living around the Wollongong region, he's going around Sydney and his videos have been watched many times saying that everyone needs to forgive one another. There is no hope for reconciliation without forgiveness. If I, if I can be a little bit bold and maybe a little bit cheeky, I actually thought that my arguments had more theology and more accurate theology in them then uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen, because any Christian understanding of reconciliation must put forgiveness as absolutely central. Jensen never, ever did that. In fact, he criticised me for, for, for actually doing that. And until there is any forgiveness in this country, until there's a... And this is again said by Peter Sutton in his book, um, The Politics of Suffering unless there is a movement of forgiveness as equally powerful and prominent as the movement for, for sort of sorry, then reconciliation will, will never, will always be greatly in the distance. And the people that should be stressing the need for forgiveness the most are the Christian ministers like Michael Jensen, like Archbishop Kanishka Raphael and others. That's what makes it distinctively Christian and not just Makarata. Makarata is resolving a dispute, generally speaking, through punishment, though, through um, realising some kind of, um, through sort of realising justice again. Um, that is not really the Christian understanding of reconciliation. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more, Stephen. And uh, look, I don't think it was uh, 
uh, cheeky of you at all to point that out. I, I read your article and um, Michael Jansen's before this interview, and um, I found you had far more theology. And, and of course, it was the Apostle Paul who uh, gave the West essentially the idea that there's there's no racial barrier, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. So, Stephen, um, uh, you've been very generous with your time today. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your wisdom with us. Um, uh, four weeks to, to go to voting day, uh, but uh, thanks for the contribution you've been making and for joining us today on ADH TV. Always great to join you, Lyle. Thank you very much. Well, the only energy transition Australia is making is away from cheap and reliable electricity. What comes next is unaffordable and unreliable. It's a great leap into the dark, literally. It's stunning to see the debate now pivot in Australia to how we can keep the lights on. Only weak and woke politicians could have brought a resource-rich country like Australia to a place like this. Energy Minister Chris Bowens plans to carpet an area half the size of Victoria with solar panels, industrial windmills and new transmission towers doesn't solve the problem of what to do when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Everybody knows it except him. Battery technology to supply a modern city on a windless night for more than a few minutes does not exist. It has not been invented. Now, Family First has long argued that net zero policies, which are supported by both Liberal and Labor, should be paused until a proper cost-benefit analysis of the engineering and the economics is conducted. It seems that's exactly what the UK government under Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is doing. Yesterday, he announced pausing of several net zero measures, including the ban on diesel cars and uh, the compulsory installation of heat pumps to replace people's gas uh, heat pumps. Uh, in their homes. Uh, so, and, and he's saying that Britain is in danger of losing its social licence to pursue net zero policies because it's hurting people. Now, it's no different here in Australia. Australians can't afford the bills and the blackouts that are coming as a result of our push and our rush to net zero. The coalition this month rejected a policy similar to Family First policy to pause net zero uh, and take stock of the economics and the engineering. Sadly, our politicians have been making it up as they go along, sounding moral because of a supposed imminent climate catastrophe. The climate emergency doesn't seem that great in Britain anymore, pushing back these measures for five or more years. Now, since Australia embarked on climate policy with the Howard government's renewable energy target, the RET, which is simply a taxpayer subsidy for erecting windmills and solar panels, this was uh, 20 years ago, prices have gone up and reliability has gone down. As Daniel Wilde of the Institute for Public Affairs pointed out at the recent Family First National Conference, Australia had the cheapest electricity costs in the OECD prior to the RET, now it has amongst the most expensive and, as Wilde points out, the poor are hit the hardest. Over the last two years, prices for families have gone up by 50%. But think about this. It is the lowest income families that have been hit the hardest. The most recent data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics will knock your socks off. They delineate the amount or the, the percentage of household income 
that is spent on energy costs. So energy costs means your energy bills, gas and electricity, and also petrol or diesel that you're putting into your, your car. And it's got the five different uh, quintiles. So if you go first, second, third, fourth, fifth. If we look at the lowest fifth, so this is the lowest 20% of families by income, 15% of their income is now spent on energy. And for the highest quintile, it's 1%. This is an injustice. Now, the power sources which are reliable and cheap, coal, gas and nuclear, are now off the table according to our politicians. Liberal and Labor governments have been closing coal-fired power stations despite not having developed alternative sources of baseload electricity. Reality has finally caught up with the New South Wales Labor government which has vowed to fork out taxpayer money to walk back the planned closure of the massive Ararang power station. It has no choice. No one has thought through this policy. No electricity bill has gone down because of intermittent renewable energy being pumped into our grid. Bowen this week tried to rule out nuclear as too expensive, even though at $387 billion, that's sort of dodgy costings that he's got the department to do, it is still one third of the $1.5 trillion price tag for his renewables between now and 2030. Bowen does not appear to be a particularly smart man. The debate has reached farcical proportions. Australia's climate policy drips with hypocrisy as we ban coal and gas use to the benefit of our own citizens, while they both remain two of our most lucrative exports to other countries. We can't burn it here, but we can burn it there. Whose climate are we saving and at what cost to our people? Well, legislation allowing abortion to birth cleared the West Australian Parliament this week. Liberal Upper House member, the Honourable Nick Goran, was in the thick of it and he tried to at least prevent it, but then when it couldn't be prevented, he put forward, along with colleagues, a number of motions to at least try and civilise the law, particularly in terms of providing protections for girl babies and the disabled and also provisions for babies born alive after a botched abortion. Uh, Nick Goran kindly joins me now from Perth. Nick, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Lyle. It's a pretty sombre day here in Western Australia, I've got to tell you, but it's good to be with you. Yeah, look, I really appreciate your giving of your time. Um, West Australia has now fallen in line with the other states which have now taken abortion right up to birth out of the criminal code and made it legal. Um, you said you're feeling sombre. I guess um, the, the magnitude of what's occurred is, is hitting home. Uh, yes, because actually Western Australia is now worse than anywhere else in, in Australia. Uh, we have always had access to abortions in Western Australia, uh, ultimately up till birth. It's just that previously, uh, after 20 weeks gestation, you needed two doctors to agree that there was a medical condition either in the child, the unborn child, or in the mother that justified the procedure uh, that will no longer uh, be required. Um, but why it is, why we have gone worse than anywhere else in Australia is because we now have a situation where if a baby is born alive after an abortion and then they die, the coroner of Western Australia 
will no longer be investigating these matters and that is not the case in any other place in Australia. Yeah, now, now that's horrific, uh, Nick. Now we just need to unpack this because what happens around this issue of abortion just so unbelievable. First of all, a lot of people's heads will be spinning at the idea that some babies are born alive after birth, uh, sorry, after a failed abortion and left to die. And we've, you and I have talked about this before, but um, you're saying that even an amendment, well, A, to try and ensure that medical care is rendered to a baby in such a situation. That was defeated this week in your parliament, but so was the provision that a coroner should at least investigate those deaths. T tell us, what, what are your colleagues thinking? Yes, that's what you've said is right, um, uh, Lyle. And the context here is that we had a health minister in Western Australia who um, rigorously campaigned with misinformation on this. It's quite extraordinary. This is a health minister that said that there's no such thing as a failed abortion. And yet uh, in parliament, in the upper house, we confirmed that women considering an abortion are warned about the prospect, the risk of a failed abortion. We have a health minister in Western Australia who said there's no such thing as a baby born alive after an abortion. And yet in the upper house, it was confirmed that there are 28 cases of this currently before the coroner's court in Western Australia. We have a health minister in Western Australia that said that there is always a paediatrician present at the live birth of a baby after an abortion and yet in the upper house it was confirmed that that is not the case. So the health minister in Western Australia's credibility is completely in, in tatters after this particular debate. And so we were seeking myself and actually, uh, as you know, Lyle, I'm from the Liberal Party and a yeah. Labor member of parliament, the Honourable Kate Dowst, who should yeah, be recognised and applauded for her work in this area. Uh, we moved amendment after amendment just to try to moderate in some fashion this horrendous uh, law. And the one that really, really hits home to me is an amendment moved by Kate that there be medical care and treatment provided to a baby born alive after an abortion. And that was comprehensively defeated. And I just cannot understand that. Look, uh, I think, um, I, I don't even want to use the words in fairness to those who support abortion because what they propose is not fair. But because of their position, they have to deny the humanity of the unborn baby, even at the very late stages, to justify what they're doing. And, and that's the only thing that I can think that explains why they would vote down an amendment to render medical care to a baby born alive after an abortion and to vote down... Yes, but Lyle, that's not, that's not good enough. We can't let them get away with that. I agree. Because even by their own definition, they... We, we say that it's an unborn child in the womb. You and I and others in, around Australia say that, that it's an unborn child in, in the womb. They say it's a fetus. They're yeah. entitled to their view. We're entitled to our, our view. But once the baby has fully proceeded from the mother, as per Western Australian law, it is a Western Australian citizen and actually their birth is registered as a matter of law and that will continue to be the case. So once you have your birth registered as a matter of Western Australian law, you ought to receive all of the same medical care and treatment as any other Western Australian turning up in a hospital. We perform fantastic, incredible, miraculous work on premature babies in Western Australia. At from, as, from as little as 22 weeks gestation, they survive. I asked a question in parliament to the health minister, who, as I say, credibility in tatters, but nevertheless, even she had to accept 
that babies are born alive, they survive at 25 weeks, 24 weeks, 23 weeks, 22 weeks. And that's because of the incredible medical care that's available. So once they have fully proceeded from the mother and they're a Western Australian, they are a person, they are entitled to healthcare and it is reprehensible, it is repugnant that uh, there is now an amendment that's been defeated to suggest that they should not be receiving that particular care and worse, that they will no longer be investigated by the coroner. Yeah, look, obviously, Nick, I totally agree with you, but in their minds, they cannot afford under any circumstances to allow the thought in their mind or anyone else's mind that this is a human being even before or after birth. The hypocrisy is unbelievable. Um, Nick, There were you sent me um, a whole list of amendments that you and people like Kate Douse, and I'm sure there were a few other good people involved as well. Another horrific amendment that was lost uh, to my thinking, and I'm sure to every thinking Australian was the one to ban sex selection in abortions. We know that there are some, sadly, ethnic communities who value boy childs, boy babies over girl babies. We know that this happens. Um, and yet the Parliament of Western Australia wouldn't bring in an amendment, wouldn't pass an amendment to, to protect unborn baby girls. And this is misogynist, isn't it? Right. Uh, I, I don't know what to tell you, uh, uh, Lyle, other than the facts, and the facts are that it was the closest of all of the votes, so make of that what you want. It's still incredible. I think it was 12 votes against 19. It's still incredible to think that it didn't pass. Mm. But then again, I say to myself, well, if you've got a group of, of members of parliament, who the majority of whom don't think it's worth mandating that there'll be medical care for a baby born alive, well, how can we really expect them to be making a decision with regard to sex selection? I, I just find it incredible. In South Australia, as you know, they do uh, ban sex selection abortions in Western Australia. The minister was expressly asked, if we don't pass this amendment, will it be lawful to be able to perform an abortion for sex selection and the cute and I use that term advisedly, response back from the minister was, well, it would not be unlawful. So translation, it will be permissible. It's, it's unbelievable. So what were your colleagues saying? You were involved in a long debate uh, this week and, and there was debates in the weeks leading up to this. How are they justifying this? Uh, or do they just go silent when it comes to talking about whether baby girls uh, should be killed or whether you know babies should be just left to, to die after abortions? What, what, what's the rationale that they give in the parliamentary chamber when this is debated? So, uh, in essence, uh, Lyle, on that particular issue of sex selection, my recollection is that nobody um, spoke against the amendment. It was only a few of us who were speaking for the amendment, other than the government representative who said, look, this amendment is not necessary. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and basically the rationale was to say, well, look, there's no evidence to suggest that this is happening. Now, Lyle, I've been in Parliament for 14 years and I can't tell you how many times provisions have been inserted out of a need for clarity and for safety. I have repeatedly pointed out to governments of both persuasions that some provisions are unnecessary. They've said, well, honourable member, we'd like to include it just as a matter of safety, just yep. to be sure. Yep. But when it comes to sex selection abortions, they don't want to include it. 
Well, well, Nick, um, unfortunately our time is gone, but what, what has happened there in Western Australia is truly horrific. It, it does mirror much of what has gone on in the other states. Um, uh, although you guys have gone a step further with that, uh, taking out the coroner's involvement in a baby born alive after abortion. South Australia, as you said, at least they have banned sex selection. They're the only state that's done that. Um, so we've got a terrible situation in Australia, uh, Western Australia, the latest domino to fall. But uh, Nick, um, I'm sure I speak on behalf of all of our viewers, uh, how much uh, your work and that of Kate Doust from the Labor Party, and I'm sure some others, uh, is very much appreciated. Thank you for fighting the fight for the voiceless and for their mothers. Thanks very much, Lyle. We'll never stop. Now, during the same-sex marriage debate way back in 2017, the No campaign, which I was a part of, argued that redefining marriage was unjust to children and women. Now, while the Yes campaign tried to say the only thing on the ballot was the love of two people, we knew there were far greater consequences. Marriage is a compound right to found and form a family, and mothers or fathers should not be deliberately excluded from a child's life. No adult has the right to do that to a child, but here we are. So this is how we chose our beautiful egg donor. Um, so we wanted her to have lovely big eyes. I wanted her to have really thick hair because I've had two hair transplants. <laughs> I wanted her to have a really wide, nice smile and just look like a kind person. Yeah, and we wanted her to be creative because we love the arts. Yeah. So how it works is you join up with an egg donor agency and you literally go through thousands, that's what Stuart did. That's what I did. I went through thousands, thousands, thousands. I shortlisted them, sent them to Francis and yeah. let him decide. And then we had, I had three or four in front of me and then we had a few Zoom calls with the ones that we liked, and then the yeah. first egg donor let us down. Fuming, so second egg donor let us down. Oh, yeah. Fuming. Fuming, and then by the third, we literally found her, and I was like, oh, she's incredible. And when we got on the Zoom call, we were like, oh, be calm, God, play it so down, don't be too keen. Um, and and luckily, she said yes, and this is the result. Yeah. Look at his hand. Look, altruistic surrogacy was legalised in most states of Australia after demands from gay activists. Altruistic simply means no money changes hands, but it is still a deeply unethical practice for babies and women. But make no mistake, one of the unfinished business items of the LGBTIQA plus political movement in Australia is achieving commercial surrogacy so two men can have unfettered access to a cash market in human babies and a rental market in women's wombs. Tim Wilson, the former Liberal Member of Parliament who helped bring about the redefinition of marriage in law, is an advocate for lifting the ban on commercial surrogacy. This debate is coming. Will our politicians have the courage to say no? On past form, probably not. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for your company. Don't forget to follow me and ADHTV on X, formerly Twitter. There's plenty of political commentary on the Family First blog. That's familyfirstparty.org.au. You can also find us on Facebook. I want to thank the team here at ADHTV for production. Until next week, keep speaking up.